We're in Romans, and in this series we were looking at, in verses really 1 through 8, we looked at the qualifying characteristics of a life that brings honor and glory to God. We've seen a humble surrender. We have seen a, a humble mind. We've seen a life that is marked by resisting the world. We've looked at a life that starts with inward transformation as we renew our minds. We saw last week the, a life that approves the will of God, that is able to test and practice the truth so as to identify what the will of God is. And now we come to this last mark. It is a life marked by loving, faith-filled service of others. A life that is, believes the truth, has been given faith, and exercises gifts to the care and love of others. But it is this last point that I'm actually going to break off into another series. I didn't want to. I wanted to do it in one sermon, but I got into it, and I cannot get it done in one. So we're going to break it off into its own series, a, what I've entitled Faith-Filled Service. So I trust you will give me that freedom, but really we're building on our last point in the previous study. Maybe let me set it up, the problem, in this way, if I can identify the problem. The problem is identified in this, that how do you respond when you see spiritual gifts exercised around you? How do you respond in your own heart? There are particular temptations that we have when somebody's spiritual gift is on display. The temptation we have is to either diminish that person or say, hey, what about me? Either to take what they're doing and say, well, you know, look, we don't worship men. We worship God and not men. So we want to bring them down a little bit so as to kind of even the playing field. Or to have a pity party to say, hey, my gift's important too. If you don't have see my gift, uh, then what about me? And I actually chuckle to myself because... This Sunday, we have Pastor Appreciation Sunday. I guarantee you there is no overlap between this sermon and the Pastor Appreciation Sunday. I laugh at the Lord's good providence in directing all of this out. And you know me, because obviously we're in this text, working through the next verse, and here we are in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. To illustrate the problem... Let me draw your attention to a life, an event in the early church. Turn over to Acts chapter 5. And let me just show you a particular problem that occurred in the early church. And then from that, we can come back and see how Paul ministers here to the Romans. Acts chapter 5. It's had to be a startling event if you were in the early church to have this particular event come up. Acts chapter 5 is the chapter that discusses the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember the story, verses 1 through 6 describes it. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Think about that. If you were in the early church, think about God's desire for purity in the church. That one couple, one family here, lied against the Holy Spirit, lied against God. God called them out and took his life on the spot. You want to talk about a uh, fear and dread spreading to the whole church. This was a significant event. Notice the details in this. Here is Ananias who was making a significant sacrifice to the church, giving a significant portion of the price of land that he had sold, a significant portion he had given to the church, but he kept a little bit back. The problem wasn't that he gave some. The problem wasn't with the gift. The problem was that he had lied about this particular gift. Let's just assume, for the sake of illustration, that it was a hundred gold pieces that he had received for the sale of his land. He had the right to give ten One, none. He had the right to deal with this as he saw fit. He could have given 70 gold pieces and kept back 30, and it would have been a generous gift. He had any right to manage his money accordingly and give according to what was on his own heart. The problem was he lied about it. He lied about what he had done and what he was giving. The question would be, Why would Ananias and Sapphira team up to lie about this? Well, the context tells us. And you can go back to chapter 4 and verse 32, and it sets the context for us. Notice starting in verse 32. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now just notice the context that is established here by Luke. This generous, thriving, growing context of care, coupled with powerful preaching and the proclamation of the truth. You have the apostles demonstrating great authority and great power in their ministry, and you had the body who was caring for needs so that everyone was supplied for. And notice there were many doing this, verse 34, as he says, there was not a needy person among them because all 
who were owners of land or houses would sell them. This was a common practice in the early church to take of their resources and sell off to care for the particular needs. This is, as we're going to see from Romans, a gift from God that these individuals were there and were caring. Now notice, while all of that was presently happening, one raised up above the rest. Notice verse 36 and verse 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, wait a second. We have a church full of people who own houses and land, and none of their names are brought out, but here Barnabas is brought out. Barnabas, because of this significant sacrifice. Barnabas, because of this significant contribution and benefit to the movement of the church. Barnabas is identified. And not only is he identified, he is identified in Holy Scripture. So we are reading about it generations later. It's in light of that that Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira come in seeking to make the same contribution. But instead of giving the whole thing like Barnabas gave the whole thing, they kept some back privately and gave. And that lie, that contradiction, is what the Holy Spirit calls them into account for. It was ministry jealousy. It was self-focus. It was concern about oneself, thinking highly about themselves. It is Ananias and Sapphira wanting some of the ministry attention that drew them to act, to keep back, and to lie against God. One might argue, well, if we didn't mention Barnabas, and we didn't highlight one who was really successful, then we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have the temptation that Ananias and Sapphira would have. I guarantee you that when Joseph, a Levite, or Barnabas, gave his significant gift, and the news spread around the church, there was great joy, great encouragement, great excitement when the things of God are being honored and when the people are giving selflessly and sacrificially and spiritual gifts are on display. But the question that comes out is this, how does our heart respond when we see grand expressions of spiritual giftedness? Turn over to Romans 12, because that is the very problem that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And the human heart is very sophisticated because while we know we can't have jealousies and we can't have evil ambitions and we can't be proud, we dress up our jealousies and ambitions and pride. Even, again, Ananias and Sapphira having ministry, jealousies, and pride covered it by saying, I'm giving of the whole amount while secretly holding on to this personal ambition. 
our ways that we are tempted and ways in which our hearts are exposed by the gifts we have around us in the body of Christ. And what we must learn is how do we respond to the multifaceted gifts that God gives to the church? And in particular, how do we respond when one of those gifts functions very well? One of the more showy gifts or prominent gifts is functioning well, how do we respond? Let me just walk through this text. First, let me show you the pastoral protection here. Paul takes us into this discussion. In verse 3, notice what he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every one among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now stop right here. We begin to see now Paul's shepherding. Paul's ministering to his context, to his audience. It's rather fascinating to know that Paul had not yet visited Rome. He had not yet been to this place to see this group of people, to look them in the eye, to understand their heart struggles and their difficulties. And yet, Paul, knowing the heart of man, says to them, you must be careful not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. This is an admonishment. This is a warning. This is a confrontation. That's calling out a human problem, a human temptation, something that we would all be vulnerable to. And as I observe this, I start to recognize in just three verses, we've seen three different ways in which Paul ministered to the Romans. Back in verse 1, we see his urging. He says, I urge you. So you see the fatherly plea that he makes as an apostle appealing to his audience, carefully listen to me, carefully consider the words that I am saying, and act according to these words. This is a a fatherly uh, wisdom that he is giving. Appealing and calling them to the things that are beautiful and good. Then in verse 2, he moves to a more direct charge, a command. In fact, he gives two commands in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He gives commands in verse 2, reminding his audience of what they are to do. And then in verse 3, he gives the admonishment, the warnings. Paul here is shepherding the Romans leading them in differing ways. And it draws to my attention the importance of being balanced as a pastor, pastor, as a shepherd, as a leader. Thinking about this, whether you're leading in your home or whether you're ministering to the church, there is an appropriate balance that is necessary. We might ask, what are the necessary qualities of a good leader, a good pastor, shepherd? And we might be able to identify a lot of things. We could point to the fact that somebody is useful, somebody is gifted, somebody has been successful, somebody who prays deeply, somebody who is evident example of godliness. All of those would be great qualities that would identify a good pastor. But one thing I would point out is this, somebody who is well-balanced. Somebody who exercises all the necessary qualities 
that are demonstrating of a godly man. Paul wasn't just caught up in just being fatherly urging. He wasn't caught up in simply just being one who commanded or exhorted. Nor was he always stuck in the rut of admonishing. He was all of these things. And the important point to observe is he was all of these things according to the need of the moment. Whatever was necessary, whatever was appropriate, was what Paul brought out. I think this is important. Because we do have the tendency to think, I don't like correction. I don't like admonishment, or I don't want to be commanded. I, I just want the fatherly please all the time. Or somebody saying, well, don't give me the fatherly please. Just tell me what to do. No, it's all of these things. We need all of these qualities to be possessed and practiced in order to be cared for. I'm always leery of the person who all the time they're just your friend. They're just the fatherly urging. Great, I'm glad you're there to urge and fatherly give wisdom. But there's a danger that our heart is only inclined to be urging and encouraging and giving wisdom. The danger is that we're afraid to speak warnings, afraid to give commands, because we're afraid that we might lose the relationship. There's a warning if we're not tackling the difficult problems. Even in Paul here, he could have easily had thought, well, I've never met the Romans. They might get a little offended if I send out an exhortation to them, and I don't want to show up having already poked them in the eye because I called out a problem that would be in their heart. But a guy who is always your friend who's always urging and encouraging, may actually prop up that friendship as being more important than their spiritual condition. And that would be a danger. As one of my ministry friends said, when talking about marriage issues, he said, we should be careful of the idol of domestic tranquility. We can desire peace at all costs so we won't say the hard things in order to keep peace in the home. We are tempted that way. Same thing happens in ministry. I just don't say anything. Nobody's going to get offended and therefore we have no problems. Frankly, that's half of ministries. They preach and they almost say something. But ministry, I'll let that sit in there for but those ministries that are teaching God's word, you are going to say what God says. It's going to move into an area of offense. It's going to confront. It's going to give commands. It's going to exhort. It may admonish. We're concerned that we're not stuck in one rut. We also are concerned about the person who's always commanding. If the one who's always commanding and they're not appealing to urge someone and bring them along, then they are placing their confidence in themselves. They're placing their confidence in how they lead, how they control, what commands they give. They have a tendency to fall to self-righteousness because it's all about the next command. No, we have to trust God. We have to put the truth on somebody's heart. We have to speak to somebody and urge them and then let God do his work. And then we're also leery of just being an admonisher. All we do is rebuke. All we do is admonish. 
everything looks like a nail, and I'm coming in with the hammer to make sure everything gets in line. That is just as much a danger as well. The faithful shepherd, like Paul, demonstrating each according to the need of the moment, ministers in all of these ways to help draw attention to what is right. So that's what Paul does here. He's shepherding our hearts. He's helping us, and he's doing it in this particular context by admonishing. He's admonishing us to pay attention to a blind spot that we might have that would be serious. Obviously, using the Ananias and Sapphira illustration, it could be unto death if you were not careful to address the problem. Now, what's the problem? The problem, and then our second point here, is the problem of pride. First one is the pastoral practice, and now is the problem of pride. We see it again here, verse 3. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking. Literally how it would read. Four times Paul calls our attention to how we think and what we think about here. Four times the use of the word fornao is used to think, to reason. And this is fitting in context because at the end verse 2, the importance in verse 2 is we are transformed by the renewing of your mind. He shows the importance of our minds, what we're dwelling on. Now, in verses 3 through 8, he is illustrating the power of our thinking and he is warning us of the danger of corrupt thinking, particularly the danger of thinking highly of ourselves and the expressions in which this high thinking might come out. And now, think about pride. There's a lot of different directions that we can go in pride. But how many times have you thought that Pride is exposed by how others use their gifts in the body of Christ. That's the context here. Notice how Paul continues. We'll start in verse 4 through 8. Notice the rest of the context of this verse. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In the context of talking about high, exalted thinking, he explains the function of spiritual gifts in the body. It's the context. There are various gifts and the body, gifts of prophecy. And Paul, just in this context, all he lists are prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. As we were to look into 1 Corinthians, we would see more gifts demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 12 and following. So Paul demonstrates the gifts. 
And what he demonstrates is in the context of exercising our spiritual gifts, there is the tendency for the high, lofty thinking, exalted thinking. There's either, again, as I said, the tendency to lift up our gift as being the most significant or to pity that others aren't observing our gift as being useful. This is the danger. And the idea that Paul is confronting here is lofty and proud thinking that diminishes others to make ourselves feel more significant. Saying, be careful of this. Back in verse 3. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sound judgment. Think carefully. When I think about it, I think, what's the most important aspect of a car? One might argue, well, it's the wheels. You can't go anywhere if the wheels aren't round and they aren't rolling. And one might argue, what's well, the steering wheel? You've got to direct those wheels accordingly. One might argue, it's the engine. The engine has to be of sound quality. One might argue, it's the gas. And one might argue, it's the gas pedal. And one might argue, it's the brakes. And one might argue, it's the seats. And on the line goes. Well, I guarantee you, there's no brakes in the car. I'm not getting in the car. And if you can't turn it, I'm not doing that. But if it doesn't have an engine, it's not going anywhere. They're all essential. They're all important. They're all necessary. You don't have a well-functioning car without all those parts. You cannot begin to distinguish. They are all important and necessary. Same is true in the complexity of the body. What's the most important aspect of the body? They're all important. They're all necessary. They're not all equally prominent, but they're all equally necessary in the body. Some have honorable use, some dishonorable, but they're all necessary. A tendency, again, of our own human hearts is to take those showy gifts and elevate them and to give them prominence and honor. And in giving the prominence and honor, some of the other hearts respond with either, I need to bring that person down or you need to recognize me to lift me up. Oh, there needs to be an equality here. In Romans 12, 3, Paul sets our perspective right. This isn't a matter of equality, as if we're trying to find equality here. Actually, what the matter is, is we need to think properly about ourselves. Do not have high thinking of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober-mindedness or sound judgment. That was the struggle for Ananias and Sapphira. They were in their situation and they saw the glory of Barnabas was receiving. They saw the honor and prestige that was happening and spreading around. And they wanted to be significant in this new movement of Christianity. And they wanted their names right there in the list. And they wanted to rise above the rest that were doing this to match Barnabas's and uh, attention. They made a big sacrifice, but they lied. Keeping back for themselves. They didn't guard their own heart, recognizing their own temptations, their own heart's jealousies. They didn't recognize that they were thinking of themselves wrongly, thinking that to some degree, I should be sharing in that glory. I should be receiving some of it myself. 
They crafted a plan. They crafted a lie in order to get to the place where they could share in some of that glory. And God had called them out. Paul gives us the warning. How do we, when we see that happening, when we see gifts honored, when we see certain people doing their, exercising their spiritual gift well, when it's exercised in such a way that is benefiting many people, when it is exercised in such a way that's given great honor, how do we respond? Notice what Paul doesn't say here. Again, in verse 3, he doesn't say, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. He, he does not say that we are to go around and bring everybody down. Don't let anybody be acknowledged. He doesn't say we make sure that everybody's treated equally. Everyone has the same prominence, just like everyone has the same importance. No, he actually says, look at yourself and think soberly. What happens in our hearts when we are, our consciences are burdened to think, I've got to treat everyone at the same level? What happens in our heart is we go around and say, well, don't say anything because we don't want them to get, we don't want them to be proud. Don't say anything because if you say anything about how they're being useful, if you say anything to Barnabas for his big sacrifice, his head's going to get proud and then he's going to struggle. Or if we say anything, we're going to take away his treasure in heaven. We don't want to do that. We don't want to take away his gift. This is our heart's temptation is to police everybody else's gratitude so nobody else gets proud. But again, Paul does not say that here. Paul says here, each man looks to himself and looks at his own heart to make sure he is not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think, but rather he should be thinking as having sound judgments, thinking in an appropriate way. Paul says, evaluate your own heart. What happens if we see spiritual gifts around and we see somebody exercising those gifts in magnificent ways and it is blessing God's people, what should we, what should we do in those moments? Paul tells us right here, immediately look at your heart. Where are you? Where's your heart? Listen, if you're the kind of person who says this, why are we honoring a person who's just an unworthy servant? I mean, why are we just why are we honoring Barnabas? He's just an unworthy servant, anyways. It's not his money; it was the Lord's money. He was just doing with it with the Lord's work. So why are we honoring Barnabas? Why are we putting his name in Holy Scripture so everybody remembers his name for generation after generation? Why not list everybody? Or if you're the kind of person who's responding in such a way that we don't want to do that because we might take away the rewards or we might make them proud, ask yourself this question. Is it possible that God gave to the church that unique personal gift and allowed it to flourish in order to expose pride and jealousy and envy in your own heart. Because that's what Paul is bringing out in this context. 
we have the problem, the temptation to lower expect, lower praise and adoration and honor around thinking we're doing the church a service. We might actually be protecting our own pride, our own desire for adoration and affection, our own desire for affirmation. Paul's warning at the end of verse 2 is, to think, or end of verse 3, but to think so as to have sound judgment. This idea, this sound judgment is think soberly. Think with no other outside influences. Nothing controlling your thinking, but being sensible, being sound. It's used in 1 Peter 4, 7, translated as sound judgment. The idea of this word is used in Mark chapter 5 and verse 15 when the man who was under demon possession had been delivered by demon possession and now he says he was able to have right, he was in his right mind. Well, no longer controlled by a demonic force. He was no longer controlled by some kind of outside thinking, outside influence. He thought soberly, clearly, accurately, soundly. Our question would be, okay, how? How would I do that? Well, Paul gives us two ways. And this is our third point, the proper perspective. What is the proper perspective that we ought to have? The first is this. We praise God for He is the source of all gifts. The first sober response to when we see gifts exercised and they flourish and the body's built up by it and we're giving praise and honor for the exercise of that gift, the first sober response is praise God for his gifts. Notice at the end of verse 3. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God gives the gift. God grants them. God sends that individual to us. God gives that person the opportunity to exercise it. And if anyone blessed the ministry in any way and we receive the exercise of their gift and it benefits us, we know that's from God. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God prepares good works that we should walk in. And that person being faithful to God, obedient, exercised their gift, and we were benefited by it. It is from God. The first then sober response is not, I need to bring you down. The first sober response is, praise God that he has given your gift to this body. That he has used your gift to build us up. That he is using your abilities, your service, your faith, your example for our personal benefits. Praise be to God. God is the source of all good gifts. Think about it. As God has allotted to each the measure of faith, God has always been the source for every great gift from all generation. God equipped Barnabas, gave him the unique opportunity to sacrificially care for the ministry. God raises up a Calvin to Kaiser, a McChaney to MacArthur, a Sproul, to a Spurgeon, God raises them all up. God ministers, God directs, God gives, God supplies. And every time it is God who is pouring out that marvelous gift to the benefit of the whole body. So any time we see that expression, our first and most glorious response is praise God for this. Because I am benefited and the church is benefited. 
Now, someone might say at this point, well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. Because one could make the case, if anyone in the church benefits for the health of the ministry, it's you. You, Pastor, get all the praise. You're likely the highest paid person in the church. You, you receive the benefits of this ministry. So it's easy for you to have that mindset because you're at the top there and no one else rivals your glory. You receive all the honor, all the praise, all the attention. And so it's easy for you to stand from your lofty, exalted pulpit there and say something like that, but what about me? And I would respond in this way to say, please, do not think so highly of me as to think that I would never be tempted in this way. I mean, be easy for me to be tempted. We have great pastors and elders in our ministry able to teach sound doctrine, effectively handling the scripture. Whenever one of them is praised and honored, it'd be easy for me to wave a flag and say, hey, but did you remember my series last week? And did you remember the labors that I'm working through? Do you remember my study in Romans? And certainly it would be easy for me for honoring teachers in the ministry to say, but what about my gift? Or if another gift was honored, somebody who gave liberally or, or somebody who serves well. And, but, but what about the teaching ministry? Isn't that important? be easy to pull attention to my gifts, to have a pity party if I didn't get the same honor or at least equal honor whenever someone else was honored. be easy. The danger is, I miss that, no, all of our hearts need to do the same thing, that the godly response to praise is to join in the chorus of praise to God. Praise God for that gift. Praise God for that individual. Praise God for their faithfulness. Praise God for the fruit it's producing. Praise God for what's being done in our ministry because all of these gifts are necessary and important. Isn't it amazing that the church is built not on the power and the persuasion of a particular person or people, but is built on the testimony and the work of Christ and his grace? Isn't it amazing that as God continues to build his church, he continues to supply his gifts to the church to edify it and strengthen it and build it up? I'm thankful for that. Thankful for the joyful service, thankful for the rewards, thankful for the maturity that that produces in our body, thankful for the way that builds us up because as Ephesians 4 says in Ephesians 4.16, we grow with the growth in which the body supplies. The whole body exercising their gifts, ministering to one another in their unique ways by faith is causing the church to be strengthened and grow. This leads us to Paul's second point. In verses 4 and 5, the second point is this. We think soberly and we remember the body is made up of interdependent parts. The body is made up of interdependent parts. Whenever a gift is expressed and it's expressed in a way that is beneficial to us, we remember one, this is from God, and we remember two, this is the body of Christ and I need that gift. I need that gift expressed. 
I need the person who's exhorting, who's teaching, who's leading, who's showing mercy, who's giving, who's serving. I need every one of those gifts. It's for our building up. Notice what he says, four and five. Just as we are many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul describes the diversity of the body and the unity of the body. We're not the same. We don't function the same. We don't have the same role. We don't have the same prominence. We don't have the same usefulness. But we're all independent. We're all interdependence. We're all tied up together. There is a unity. The kind of unity that we need one another. We need one another's gifts to strengthen us. So the sober-minded response when somebody is expressing a gift in a magnificent way is to recognize one, praise to God for what he's doing, and even praise for that particular gift because it is benefiting us all and at the same time recognizing I need that. I need that person to do well. I want you to do well. I want you to succeed. I want you to be excellent in your work. I want to give you all praise for your excellent work because the whole body of Christ needs it. We are interdependent on one another. So that there is a a diversity. While we all don't share the same prominence, we all don't share the same high-profile observations and demonstrations, We are all necessary in God's marvelous work. Because he builds up and he edifies and he strengthens us through it. I love this from Paul. The warning when we are trying in our own hearts to try to bring everyone down and to to, uh, bring everyone at an equal level. When we should actually be turning around saying, I'm going to push everyone forward. I want to lift up everyone. I want to exalt everyone. I want everyone to receive praise and honor because God is the supplier of all the gifts. He is the supplier of all good things to the body. And God might even be testing my own heart to see if I had an area of jealousy in my own heart. So funny, after the service, first service, someone had come up to me and said, you know what, that principle works in business as well. At work, I was asked to do a project. I labored in that project and did good work. I turned it in. My boss took it. My boss got praised. I didn't get acknowledged at all. So yes, and how did your heart respond in that moment? Could you praise God that you enabled and strengthened them? You should. Our hearts are filled with the tendency to be proud and we justify our pride as being spiritual police for others. And we ought to be looking at our own hearts say, am I keeping it in check? And am I drawing the people of God towards God so that God receives all praise and honor? No gift is more important than another. They are all necessary, but they're not all equally prominent. I know I wish, honestly, we all were, because I would love to see everyone's joy complete. But I know one day the Lord is going to give all, measure all according to their, their rewards, and 
we're all going to be judged differently. Certainly those prominent gifts, those high-profile gifts that the Lord gives to the church, he also warns, be careful, let not many of you become teachers, for such will incur a stricter judgment. There will be time of evaluation. So we pray for one another. We seek to protect one another so that God's grace will be richly on display. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, what an amazing timing and your good providence to direct our hearts and minds to these things. We understand that you are the one moving, shaping, and building your church. And so as we come, we come as an act of obedience, an act of faith, serving according to the gift in which you have supplied to us excellently so that you would receive all honor and praise. When we're tempted in our own hearts, may we turn those jealousies and ambitions to you, casting them upon you, trusting you in your marvelous work to humble the proud, to lift up the lowly, to protect the innocent. You accomplish all of these purposes according to your good design, and so we give you all praise and honor. And even if the unrighteous man exercised his gift in an unrighteous way, we give praise to you for you use it to build up the church, to edify, to transform. So you can take even the unrighteous deeds of man and accomplish your good purpose and work all things for good. So we trust you. We trust your faithfulness and we trust your sovereign hand to move for what is good and we trust your all wise purposes and we trust your wisdom and understanding and we trust what you're accomplishing and we desire just to be faithful humble servants accomplishing your good purposes so that you would receive all praise and glory and adoration and when it is time for us to finish the race and move on to glory, we trust you'll raise up the next generation of gifts to continue the message of the ministry of Christ so that your glory would continue to reign and it would be demonstrated that our gifts were just a tool in which you use to accomplish your good purposes and that you're the author of all these things. Thank you for this wonderful text and the way it ministers to our hearts use this time to build up this body. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.